Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. As I mentioned, we will pick up in our study of 1 Thessalonians. We've made it as far as chapter 3 here in our study. I pray that you are enjoying this. I hope you're enjoying this. I do believe that this book is an important book for us to study in this time. As you'll hear me say throughout this evening, and you'll certainly hear me say it multiple times throughout our study of First and Second Thessalonians, because of the time in which we live, we ought to be thinking eschatologically. What's that big word? What did you just say? Eschatology. It's the study of the end things, of the end times. Normally, in most people's lives, believers or unbelievers, when we say things like end times, that makes people nervous. That makes people a little bit scared. When we say end times, we think about things like Armageddon and the Battle of Armageddon and all this crazy stuff, right? And it can create feelings inside of us of anxiety, of fear, largely because of the unknown. Perhaps for somebody who's seeking after Jesus Christ, who's not yet surrendered their life to Him, there maybe is this sense of what happens in the end times. Maybe there's an aspect of fear of judgment and all these different things. In our world today, and because of a lot of different resources, we have been sort of confused oftentimes about what the end times is all about. And the fact is, more than anything else, and yes, we should develop a good understanding of the things which are yet to happen. More than anything else, though, it should bring comfort to us. It should be our hope. It should be what we are looking forward to, especially in the times in which we live. And as crazy as things are, we should be thinking, I can't wait for all things to be made right. And so we ought to be thinking that way. And this is one of those letters, both of these letters, in fact, First and Second Thessalonians, help us to understand how we are to live in light of Christ's return. Now, in chapter 3 here tonight, we find Paul continuing to consider the spiritual state of this young church that the Lord used him to birth in the city of Thessalonica. There on the Aegean Sea, he came into this area, and he was there for only three weeks, if you recall from our first two studies. And amazing things happened in such a short period of time. Truly, revival took place in this city. It's incredible what happened in such a, a short amount of time. But because of the disruption in the city, because they came and and essentially turned this pagan culture upside down, so many people turning into Jesus freaks, that people began to be upset, whether it was the, the Jewish leaders that were there or even those who were of a pagan persuasion. They were upset with the things that were happening. And so Paul essentially was run out of town. And here in, in chapter 3, he continues to express his concern for this young church before he makes his way in chapters 4 and 5 into more theologically heavy topics. Because Paul does recognize he wants to continue to teach them, he wants to instruct them, but he spent the better part of here three chapters just expressing his fondness towards them, his appreciation of them, basically saying to them, I'm proud of you. But here in chapter 3, Paul, uh, and I really appreciate this chapter because here he starts to be a bit more transparent. And maybe I shouldn't say a bit more transparent. Paul's typically a pretty transparent guy. But here in this chapter, he really sort of becomes an open book for us. He puts his heart on his sleeve. Here in this chapter in particular, I believe that we see some insight into the heart of a pastor. And so it's not going to be my intent necessarily tonight to make this 
my chapter or my expression of a pastor's heart to you, but, but there's definitely some parallels here. Whether me or any good pastor, I would say what we read here in chapter 3 tonight should encourage you as believers in terms of how those who are responsible for much of your spiritual growth think about you, what they think about you, how they care for you, how they're concerned for you. For us, especially during this time, for pastors all around the world who aren't able to gather regularly with the body of Christ that they are called to shepherd, this is a particularly impactful chapter here tonight. As we think about the inability in some cases to see one another and the concern that we have for each other. And so I think it's a wonderful chapter here tonight as we see Paul's own heart for this church that the Lord used him to birth. And and as I consider the topics that are discussed and the encouragement that's provided, the concern that is expressed, I would want all of you to know that these are many of the thoughts that I have towards you. And given similar circumstances, if we could even begin to sort of relate to what's happening here, though it might be a stretch, I would say that these are absolutely concerns that I would have for each of you, concerns that any pastor would have for a a body that they oversee. And Paul starts, as uh, we'll read here, uh, with the word, therefore. And so I want for us to, uh, let's go ahead and take a look at the passage together. Uh, This is a relatively short passage of Scripture here, again in in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3. Let's go ahead and read along together, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened. And you know, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is the full chapter here, and as I mentioned, and as we read there in verse 1, in the beginning here, he says, therefore, which we know connects us to the previous thought, which we find in chapter 2 there at the end in verses 17 through 20. It was there that Paul expressed his great desire to see them again. He said in verse 17 of chapter 2, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart. That's an important distinction there. He's he's recognizing here that we're still connected in heart, even though we're not together physically. He said, We endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. This is a very passionate word here that he's using. In the original language, this, this truly did express an incredible desire, a yearning 
yearning to be with them. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. He recognizes here that this was spiritual warfare that was going on, preventing them from being able to get back to see them. This isn't just simply, oh, I didn't have time. We had a busy schedule. This is the fact that I wanted wanted to see you. We wanted to be with you, but Satan prevented it from happening. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Paul says to them, uh, in essence, you are the trophy in my trophy case. That I am so proud of all of you and I want to be with you. And so then, as we read in these first verses of chapter 3, it is this great desire in what seems to be the obstacles or the disruptions that come from the enemy that is fueling a change of plans for Paul, as he says again here in verses 1 and 2, therefore, when we could no longer endure it. He's saying, when I couldn't even, I couldn't stand it anymore. We thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Now remember, as I said, Paul had left there very suddenly. Paul didn't spend much time there, and his departure from them was very rushed. Persecution had driven his departure, and if that were not difficult enough, without technology like we have today, Paul had no immediate way of knowing the spiritual state of this young church. If he believed Satan to be at work hindering his own plans and fueling the persecution that it caused him to leave Thessalonica, what might be the impact on those who remained? Paul was a worried parent, as it were, unable to reach their child, wondering and knowing bad things are happening right now. What might be happening to them? So not being able to endure any longer, saying, I just can't take it anymore, not being able to see them or hear from them, Paul changes plans and he sends Timothy to them. Now, what this means then is that Paul is going to have to remain alone in Athens. He's going to have to go at this next mission solo. Which, by the way, was a really tough mission field. For Paul to be in Athens means that he was dealing with, this is sort of the quintessential university town. You had the the so-called intellectuals there that philosophized and had all their different opinions, most of which were secular in nature. There was This was, a, a, in many respects, a pagan capital. I mean, he was not around many people who were eager to hear the truth of the gospel. And if people did want to hear it, they only wanted to hear it for a tickling of their ears so that they could have some sort of debate. This would not have been an easy field for Paul to till alone. But it seemed best out of a pure concern for this other church that he cared deeply about to say, I'll stay here alone. Timothy, you go to them. Friends, our love for one another and our commitment to the work of the gospel ought to be such that we are willing to personally sacrifice and change our plans for the sake of others. I want you to think about that for a moment. Listen, and this isn't me saying to you that, oh, I've got this down. Anybody who knows me knows that I don't love to change my plans. No matter how big the plan or how small the plan, if I get it in my mind, I like to stick with it. I like to go with it. Whether it's plans that we have for a Saturday night or whatever the case may be. Now, there's been more flexibility that's come with age, but the Lord hasn't worked this out of me entirely yet. 
But here, Paul, we have to, we can't miss what he's saying here. He's, they were on mission in Athens and he was with a good a friend, someone who he was mentoring and teaching. But his concern was so great for these other believers and their own spiritual condition. He said, we'll just change what we're doing. I'll go, I'll go by myself. Okay, we get frustrated if the restaurant we want to go to is closed, right? And granted, you may be saying, well, it wouldn't be that big of a deal if I knew that somebody's life was on the line. Okay, great. But, but we've got to think about this a bit more. What, what is our desire for one another? What's our, what's our love for one another? Are we willing to sacrifice personally for the sake of the gospel? And here, what they wanted for them was to lift them up, to encourage them, to establish them in their faith. Why? Why was this so important? That may seem obvious, but Paul does give us an understanding of this. He wants this church to understand why it was important to send Timothy to them. He says in verse 3 that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. Paul was confident that they were being afflicted. The very nature in which he was driven out of Thessalonica made him understand that there was persecution that was happening there. It made sense for Paul to leave, but the rest of them had to stay and had to continue to endure persecution. And Paul's concern was that persecution and the trial and the afflictions that were likely assaulting them would begin to shake their faith. The thing he couldn't stand, the thing he couldn't endure any longer was not having confidence and knowing that they were still walking with the Lord. Now, they should not have been surprised by these things. Paul will go on to say here, you yourselves know that you're appointed to this. They shouldn't be surprised that persecution came. But just simply having awareness of something doesn't necessarily make it easier. Right? We know that in our own lives. We too are aware of the fact that as believers, when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it didn't mean the promise of, of, a, of a peaceful life on this earth. It didn't mean that all of our problems were going to go away. We know that. Sometimes we know that here, but we don't necessarily know that here in our hearts. And even if we do, even if we've really meditated upon that and understood that, it doesn't mean when we face those trials that it's not still difficult, but they should not have been surprised by it. The fact is, trials can shake our faith. And Paul was concerned that theirs would be truly shaken. We know in, in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verse 12, it states, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. It's one of those other passages of Scripture that reminds us we shouldn't be surprised as believers when trials come. And look at what Paul has said to them here in this letter. Continuing on in verses 3 and 4, he says, For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. That's interesting language there that he says, almost that we were created for this or that we were made for this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know listen, I get that this is not an overwhelmingly comforting truth that we find in Scripture. But Scripture is clear that Christians will face trials. That anyone, again, who has responded to a true gospel, and when I say true gospel, I mean that it is a, it is a true and accurate gospel, a biblical gospel that presents Jesus as, as a risen Lord who came, who humbled Himself and became a man, who willingly went to the cross, 
because of your sins. Because you were in need of a Savior. Because you needed your relationship with God the Father, a holy and righteous God, to be reconciled. And that's why He came. He didn't come just to give you a great life. He didn't come so that you could have all the things in this world that you wanted. He didn't come to fulfill a prosperity gospel that says in the name of Jesus, I can name it and claim it and have whatever I want. That's a false gospel. We're not promised physical peace in this life. We're not promised uh, the, the pleasures of this world. We're promised an eternity in heaven with Him because we're in right standing with God, because our sins are forgiven. Uh, because of that, peace comes. Peace which surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds. Peace that doesn't make sense when we're in the midst of a trial, because our hope is not in this world. In fact, we'd say, I don't even belong in this world. Whatever happens in this world, though, may it be difficult for a moment. It, it's, it pales in comparison to the promise of eternity. That's what our mindset ought to be. And so, if someone has responded to a true gospel and is even remotely mature in the faith, they will understand this. They will understand the fact that we have been promised tribulation and trials. But consider what follows in the reference from 1 Peter in chapter 4. Uh, following verse 12 and verse 13, but rejoice, it says, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. It says rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. And so that means, uh, as it pertains to persecution for our Christian faith, if that happens, if that comes upon you, rejoice in that. You're participating in Christ's suffering. Now, guys, remember that this book is in many respects about how to live in light of his return. I mentioned that at the very beginning. This book, this letter is about eschatology or the study of end things or end times. And guys, right now we need eschatology because the world is crazy. The world's crazy. And the end times, though a little unnerving, as I've mentioned before, it's about hope. It's about making things right. Paul will go on in chapters 4 and 5 to speak on these very things and to try and bring encouragement and comfort. So when trials come our way, though it's not easy, yes, we should rejoice, whether in persecution because we're joined with Christ in His suffering, or as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The implication there being that if persecution comes upon you for your faith, you could almost say, well, that tells me that I'm doing something right. Praise God. If somebody, somebody notices that there's something different about me, if somebody's going to persecute me for my Christian faith, then it must have been noticeable to them. Or perhaps like Hebrews 12, which we studied recently, which tells me that when discipline comes, it's evidence that I am a child of God and that He cares enough about me to train me up and to teach me. Or the confidence that comes to us from Romans chapter 5, that with trials will come perseverance, and with perseverance, character, and with character, hope. Scripture, in fact, is filled with a number of encouraging verses that help us to look at trials and suffering and affliction and persecution differently than the rest of the world would look at it. And as much as we don't sometimes want to swallow that pill, we ought to, so that we can develop a different perspective on the things we face in this life. Trust me, as a pastor, when I teach on these things, when it continues to come up in Scripture, I find myself going, Lord, I don't want to have to put this into practice again. You know, come up and preach these things on a Sunday or on a Wednesday night or any other time and take it lightly, knowing that you may face something just around the corner in your own life and know that you've got a body of believers that are going to look to you to say, are you going to practice what you preach? 
that this is what we're each called to. And we have also the hope that when these trials do come, we as the body of Christ handle one another the way we ought to, the way that Scripture compels us so that when we go through it, we're not alone. Like Paul here as he's writing to this church, encouraging them, strengthening them, desiring to be with them, that he could walk with them during this journey. And that's what helps us to get through it. And so, friends, we must understand that suffering and trials are a very real part of this life. But like Paul said elsewhere in his second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, he said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Look out the window. Look around at this world. Look at the things that you think are so real that you can touch and you can feel and understand that those things are temporary. No differently than the trial you may be facing. It's temporary. But there is working within us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that we should be looking forward to. And so you see, this is the eschatological perspective that we are to have. Say it out loud, eschatology. That's a big word, but it's not that difficult. And the reason I want you to know that word is that you can say, yes, I need to think about these things. The end times are not scary to me. They're things that I should be understanding, that I should be looking forward to, that I should be looking to study and to understand, because in it is my hope, the hope of His coming. The hope of his return and to the rapture of the church, to be end times minded, to be looking always for his return. And with such confident hope, then we will not be shaken. That's the hope. That's the goal of Paul here. This was Paul's aim for them. And it's my hope for you that when trials come, when afflictions come, your faith won't be shaken. You won't think, well, man, God's let me down or, oh, this wasn't in the brochure or I just don't know about this old Jesus thing anymore. Then no, the opposite of that, you'll look to him and you'll say, I'm not going to be shaken. My faith is going to be strengthened through this. I look to you, Jesus. You're my hope in all this. You're my rock. You're my foundation. Lord, you're the one that doesn't change. As Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I might finish my course with joy. Paul says, none of these things move me. And I don't know that, that he got there, boom, just like that overnight. Rather, I think it was through a series of different trials and afflictions that came his way that he came to realize, well, these things don't need to move me. Where are you in your life when the trials come, when the difficulties come, when the difficult days come? And I don't say that in a condemning way, but let's evaluate it. Let's be willing to be honest with ourselves and to say, you know what? Things shake me up too much. I get too shaken. And listen, if that's you, if circumstances that come into your life, they just rattle you too much. Well, then take that to the Lord. Listen, the time is too short for drama, people. We don't need all this drama and we don't need all this woe is me stuff out there. And that's not, listen, I'm not saying that you can't come to me and say I'm struggling. Okay, no, not at all. But let's at least be self-aware enough. Let's at least be surrendered enough to the Lord. Let's, let's continually pray, Lord, search my heart. And there's a lot of different things in each of us, right? There's different things that we're struggling with. There's different sin that may be uh, difficult for each one of us. And for some of you, it's, it's drama. And for some of you, it's just like, man, I just get so rattled all the time. I turn on the news in the morning and I bite all my fingernails off and think, oh, what's going to happen? Whatever it is in your life, let's stop. And let's look to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want to be shaken anymore. I don't want to be moved by these, these temporary circumstances. 
Lord, help me to stand stronger in my faith. None of these things move me. So in verse 5 then, Paul writes, For this reason, when I can no longer endure it, and here's going to be some encouragement here shortly in the things that Paul says, When I can no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. You see, it is this concern, and so Paul did have concern here. I'll continue to touch on that here in a moment. Paul had concern, and it's what motivated Paul to send Timothy, for he knew that Satan was at work. We know in Scripture it says, for your enemy, the devil. We find this in 1 Peter in chapter 5, verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like what? A roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Paul knew the reality of that spiritual truth. He knows that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of darkness. And so because of that, he did have a concern as Satan, the tempter, as he refers to him here, was coming against this young body. And he wanted to make sure that they were okay. Recall, if you will, what Jesus said in his parable of the soils. We find this in Matthew chapter 13. If you want to go ahead and take a peek at that, in Matthew in chapter 13, in verse 18 through 23, Jesus says, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, Then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. You know, Paul was aware of this particular truth. And in the short time that he had to spend with these people, and he saw revival happen, and he saw so many people profess faith in Jesus Christ, but the fact is, the proof, as it said, is in the pudding. Only being there for three weeks with him and leaving and know that, the, that Satan was coming in and, and beginning to wreak havoc and, and afflict. How many might be like those whose seed gets snatched up by the enemy? Who as persecution comes, they say, I'm done. He wanted to know, are they still walking with the Lord? And I think it's interesting here too that Paul's concern was not only for their lives and how he looked to them with fondness and cared about their individual salvation, but he also cared about the work of the gospel. There was strategy here as he said that our work might not be in vain, our labor not in vain. There was an aspect of this particular city serving as a gateway to other areas that were unreached with the truth of the gospel. Paul was considering here, for him, it's looking at a map and continually praying, where are we taking the gospel to? And this still exists today, praise God, for our missionaries, for our sent ones, those who feel called to go into different parts of the world and share the gospel. We need to look at this in our own city, folks. If I could just take a little bit of a rabbit trail here for a moment. Take a look at our city, our community, the areas around us and say, who doesn't know the truth of the gospel? Where do we need to go? Where do we need to get the word into? In the midst of everything that's going on right now, of course, many people are recognizing the fact that through live stream, the truth of the gospel is reaching many people more so than ever before. 
Now, the, the enemy is still at work and the seeds which are being, that are being spread and the seeds that are being sown, the same risk is there for people who go, oh, okay, yeah, I, I like that. I like the sound of that. But then the cares of the world enter in and snatch up that seed. It's still there. And, and the fact is, as many people as we may reach through this technology, it's difficult because we can't necessarily follow up. We can't ensure that discipleship is happening. That's, that's part of what Paul was struggling with here is I want to be with them. I want to make sure that they truly believe. And he understood his strategy. He wanted to see the gospel go forth. If I could ask you guys to pray for our community, pray for unreached areas. And sometimes it's as simple as just, again, going into the neighborhoods around us and praying with people and just making sure that we're going and we're reaching people. Oh, if all the churches in the area, Bible-believing churches that are teaching a true gospel would work together and would begin to close the gap between their facilities, to look at a map of the Northeast and just say, how are we going to attack these areas? And, and not just the pastors of the churches, but the body of Christ. What a powerful thing that could be. And this is what Paul's desire was. His desire was for them to be walking with the Lord and for them to then be sharing the gospel with others and that, that the word would just continue to go forth. And in verse 6 he says, but now, and now this is a change here now. That now he's breathing a sigh of relief. As he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. There are a few things that we see here that Paul says. One, Paul was concerned. That much is clear. We've established that already. And I want us to understand that. That this is the Apostle Paul. Consider in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11. Let's look at that for a moment. 2 Corinthians in chapter 11. This is that incredible passage where Paul basically says, Do you have any idea what's happened to me? And I paraphrase. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In death often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, hunger and thirst, and fastings often, and cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. You see, Paul was a guy who'd been around the block. This wasn't his first rodeo. Yet he was still concerned. He was still concerned for the brethren. And so when I challenge you regarding your faith not being shaken, I'm not suggesting to you that you just walk around like this stone wall. You know, nothing bothers me. Nope, I'm good today. Everything's fine. Uh, no, we can be honest with one another. We can be transparent like Paul was here. But what's the motive for our concern? I don't think Paul was anxious here. I don't think Paul was crying out to God saying, What are you doing, God? You must not be in control anymore. But no, he was crying out saying, Lord, I love these people. I've worked hard. I've labored. I'm concerned for them. If we are to have any sort of worry in our life, worry for the safety of children, yes, parents, you get that. 
And once again, Paul here, like a parent to this young church, he was worried about them and their safety. And it caused him to be, to be, to be crying out in prayer, interceding for them, desiring to be with them, desiring to just to hear. It's okay for us to be concerned. But what is that concern for? Is it for one another? Is it for the well-being of one another? How about as we think about gathering together here again on Sunday? And so many of you, you've been staying connected. You've been calling each other. You've been keeping each other posted. You've been on Zoom calls. The ladies have been on all these Zoom calls. And man, just the, the amazing fellowship and the stories that I hear through those times. What a wonderful thing. And so I know that there has been some connection. But do you find yourself maybe thinking about someone who you haven't talked with, who you haven't been able to see or whatever? And do you find yourself longing for them? That's a good thing. Foster that. Develop that. Lean into that. Allow that to take over more and more of your heart. Secondly, what we see here with Paul is that when brothers and sisters in Christ are doing well, it's an encouragement. And it's encouragement especially to pastors. And when others stumble, conversely, when others stumble in the faith, it's devastating. So if you ever find yourself just sort of feeling like, well, maybe I haven't done much lately, or maybe I'm not being used in a particular way. Listen, if you're walking faithfully, if you love the Lord, if you can come into church and you can say, man, you know, there's been some struggles and there's some difficulties, but I got to tell you, I just love the Lord. I'm confident that He's still on the throne and I'm serving Him. And I'm just walking faithfully. Please know that's an encouragement. It's an encouragement to the entire body. And it's certainly an encouragement to me to hear of believers that are just walking with the Lord, faithfully serving Him, being in the Word. That's a wonderful encouragement. And similarly, but thirdly, here as Paul says, for now we live, what he's saying here, we would translate this differently. He's saying we enjoy life now because I've heard you're doing well. You see, Paul, he was concerned. He said, I couldn't bear it anymore. I'm going to go ahead and change my plans. It's going to be a personal sacrifice to me, but I've got to get Timothy to you so that I can hear how you're doing. And when he comes back and he gives him a good report of how the church is doing, and furthermore, he says, don't worry, Paul, they still like you. Even though you had to leave early, even though you sort of ran out of town, they're okay. And that was a concern of Paul. The way in which he left, are they going to be upset with me? Or were other people going to come in and defame his name? Because he knew there were many out there who were trying to discredit him. And so he did care about his reputation. Listen, one of the most foolish things people say on a regular basis is, oh, don't care what other people think about you. Oh, give me a break. Yes, if it's like the cool kids, right? And you want to be in with them. Well, then yeah, forget about it. But if it's like, hey, I have a reputation here, then yes, care. Because guess what? You're representing Christ. And praise God that He's gracious and He's merciful, but let's care. Let's care what people think about the body of Christ. Let's make sure we're representing Him well. Paul had concern for that. And we should as well. And when he hears that they're doing well and that they love Him and they can't wait to see Him again, he says, oh, I'm enjoying life now again. I love you guys. And so similarly, it's of great encouragement to me when I hear stories from so many other people, oh, they're doing well, or they've been victorious in this area of their life, or whatever the case may be. It warms the heart. And as then Paul comes to the end of this chapter, he begins to, it's not that he's praying in this moment, although we know Paul prays without ceasing, so it likely is as he's here penning this letter, but it's, it's sort of him saying to them, here's how I'm praying for you. As he begins in verse 10, he says, night and day. And I'm just going to break this out because there's five things that he prays for them here as we begin to close out our study. He says at the beginning, night and day, I pray exceedingly or night and day praying exceedingly. Are we doing that same thing? Do we have a prayer life? Listen, we want revival. We want it. I hope all of you say, yes, I want to see revival. 
We, we've said it a million times. If we're not praying, don't expect to see revival. This, is, this should be a house of prayer. The body of Christ should be a house of prayer. We should be regularly seeking Him in communion with Him, praying without ceasing. That's what precedes revival, interceding for others, laboring in prayer. And much of prayer, too, is about just aligning our hearts with God, allowing Him to speak into our lives. It's not all intercessory. Yes, we have our whole list of people that we pray for. You see it every day if you're on the prayer chain. All sorts of people are dealing with illness and they're sick and we pray for them. We labor for them. But a lot of prayer, too, is just about aligning yourself with God, spending time in His Word and, and, and just praying that the Holy Spirit would speak to you. They'd reveal things in your life. And as you deal with sin in your life, you continue to draw closer to Him. You can trust that he's going to begin to do, do revival in your own life and in your own heart, and that's going to spread to other people. And Paul was praying exceedingly here, night and day. What does he pray for as he shares with them? One, he says that we may see your face. Guess what? In person is better. It's better to see your face. Can I say to you right now, as I look at this camera right now, it is better to see your face. I want to see your face. Okay? Come to church. I'm not compelling you, okay? Again, don't feel bad. Some of you have said, hey, I'm going to stay home for a little while. Praise God, you do it. But I still can't wait to see your face. Text us. <laughs> FaceTime. I've FaceTimed with some of you. It's wonderful. It's better to be in person, amen? And we're going to be. On Sunday, we're going to be in person, and that's an important thing, and I can't wait for us to gather in this room in person. Paul said it, I pray that I would see your face. Secondly, he says, and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Wait a second, Paul's just been commending them. He's just been talking about how great they are. Is he now saying, hey, you're lacking. I need to take care of this. No, he's saying, I want to finish the work. He left too soon. Paul was concerned about discipleship. He was concerned about making sure they understood the fundamentals and the foundation of the faith, as should we. We should want to be a part of raising people up in the faith. Okay, so it's not about him saying they've done something wrong. It's saying, I want to continue to pour into you. I want to see you in person. I want to pour into you. I want to complete the work. Thirdly, he says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. You see here, Paul is praying for an open door to come there. He's praying for an open door. He's praying for an opportunity. And I love this about Paul. That Paul knew how the Holy Spirit was leading him. Paul was sensitive to the fact that, that the enemy was hindering them. Paul was sensitive to the fact that he went to go to one place and the Lord shut the door. He was led of the Spirit. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians in, in chapter 10, verses 12 through 18, Paul here deals with aspects of his own authority or the limit to his authority. And it may not be immediately clear what he's saying here, but Beginning in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. What Paul is saying here is to try and summarize is, I'm just trying to do what the Lord wants me to do. Wherever He leads me, whatever He gives me an open door to accomplish, that's what I want to do. 
I'm not going to boast in myself. I'm not going to boast in somebody else's labors. I'm not going to try and come on somebody else's turf. I just want the gospel to go forth. And that's the approach that we should have. That's the heart that I pray this ministry continues to have here at Calvary Chapel, is that, Lord, give us a door. And Lord, wherever that door leads and whatever comes from that, that, that you would be glorified, that the gospel would go forth. He prays for open doors. And fourth, here he says in verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. He prays here for favor upon them and an increase in love. An increase in love. We know from 1 Peter in chapter 4, verse 8, that love covers a multitude of sins. Greater man hath no one than he who would lay down his life for another. Greater love hath no man. Right? Love is woven all throughout this. He wants them to grow in their love for one another. and He says that he wants them to abound in love. Abound means to exist in large measure or in, in number. And that should be our prayer for one another as well. And it's my prayer for you that we would abound in love for one another. But listen, it's not just about one another. Yes, in John 13, 35, it says, By this all will know that you are my disciples, what? That you love one another. Okay, we got it. Great. And by golly, we are a church that loves one another. At Calvary Chapel Northeast, feels like home. And we love people. And we love each other. And we can't be wait to be back together. And that's wonderful. That's biblical. Well, what about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 46 and 47? Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You see, it's not just about one another. It's about all people. And by golly, there are some people that are hard to love. And you know that. Somebody said amen. You just didn't type it in the chat section. You don't want to give yourself away. Sometimes it's hard. Jesus always takes it to the next level. He always takes where we're like, yeah, okay, we got this. We are a fellowship that loves each other. And Jesus comes in and he says, oh, great. That's easy. What about all those people out there? And if I haven't said it already, listen, turn on the news for approximately 10 seconds and you'll see that our world has lost its mind. And not just has it lost its mind in terms of just all this crazy stuff happening. You're just like, are you kidding me right now? Am I the only one that's still sane? But our world hates each other. It's filled with hatred. Look at the things that are happening. And then the things that are happening and people are trying to defend it. And people are trying to come up with different theories as to why this is the way that it is, and this is the way that it is, and everybody's just, it's just increasingly polarized. And we know that these are further signs of the end times. But what's the church's responsibility in all of that? To take sides? To post on our social media our opinion? Because I have 300 followers, and so what I have to say is really going to change the world. Or do you just go out there and love people? To show people that there's something different about me because I've got the Holy Spirit inside of me. And listen, this term love in our culture today, it's been hijacked. The, the unsaved population, by and large, doesn't think that the church knows anything about love. They think that what we know is condemnation. And I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place for us to hold people accountable to sin. I'm not saying that we just go seeker-friendly and say, hey, forget it, we're not going to offend anybody. There are many ways for us to show love. And a lot of times that just comes through sacrifice and it comes through laying down our life. And when we do that, people then who think that all you're about is condemnation come to understand and begin to believe and say, wow, that's different. They actually served me. They spent time with me. They cared about me. They met my needs. 
I think all of this is wrapped up in Paul praying that you would abound in love, that you would be over, you would just be overwhelmed with so much love. And he goes on, and finally, in number five, says, so that, so that this almost coming as a result of this, that the Lord will make you increase and abound in love to one another, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Blameless is outward, okay? Blameless means that, that to the community around me, I am blameless. There can be no fault found in me because largely I've abounded in love and holiness is inward. And both of these contribute to our confidence before Christ at his coming. 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 28 says, And now little children abide in Him, that when He appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Now a lot of times that may seem like, okay, well, when He comes then, we're going to be ashamed? See, that's the God that, uh, I, don't, I don't like that God because it's judgment and it's condemnation. That's not what it says there. In fact, it doesn't say anything about what God does uh, when He comes. It's no different than a parent who comes home and busts you red-handed. And the parent didn't do anything. All they did was walk through the door. What happened? You knew. In your own conscience, you knew, I'm not supposed to be doing this right now. The parent actually didn't need to say anything at all. Why should it be any different for God? Who created you? Who loved you? Who gave His Son for you? Who has put within you because you're created by Him a conscience? that bears witness to what is right and what is wrong, so that when He comes, you will know. And will you be ashamed? Or will you stand in boldness and confidence before Him because you've abounded in love and holiness, because the Holy Spirit's been at work within you? Listen, nothing should prompt right living more than considering His return at any moment. That at any moment, He could come. What will He find you doing? Listen, I need to take that advice. I need to take that exhortation just as much as anybody else. If I live my life daily, allowing the Lord to do these very things in my own life, in my own heart, and to think, Lord, you could come back at any moment. I'm thinking about you. I'm looking for you, Lord. I'm living my life every day, anticipating, Lord, your return. Oh, how different some of my days might look. I trust the same might be true for some of you. And so let's take this seriously. Let's live in light of His return. Amen? Let me close this out in prayer. Father, we love You. We praise You. Lord, we give You thanks for Your Word. Especially, Lord, when Your Word can pierce our hearts in this way by the power of Your Spirit, Lord. When we can see such practical application in Your Word. And Lord, I pray for each of us, myself included, Lord, may this work be done in our lives. Father, may we desire greatly to see one another again. Lord, may we allow people to speak into our lives and for discipleship to happen. Lord, help us to desire it, Lord, that we would grow in faith. Father, may we be led of your Spirit in all things. And Lord, would you cause an increase in this fellowship, in this body of love, not only to one another, but to all of those around us, that we would be examples, that we would be witnesses for you, Lord, as we go out throughout this community, that people would see something different within us, Lord, and it would not be demonstrated in a superior way, Lord, but in a humble way, where it would be winsome and draw many unto you, Lord. Lord, cause that increase within us, I pray. And Father, establish our hearts blameless and holiness. 
Lord, help us to live our lives outwardly, Lord, in a way where you have represented well. And cleanse us, Lord, continually of anything that is not of you, Lord, that we might, Lord, upon your return, stand before you with boldness and confidence, knowing, Lord, that we've abided in you. Father, I pray that for each and every person gathered here this evening, Lord, gathered online, for those that will watch, Lord, continue to do that work within us. And Lord, I pray, as always, as a good shepherd, good before us, lead and guide us. And Lord, we especially pray that you would make a way for Sunday, that it would be a glorious reunion, Lord, and that you would be glorified in it, that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted, that our community, Lord, might even be impacted by our return to this church building. So, Father, we love you, and we praise you, and we give you thanks, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.